fun because we'll be talking about the wheat, uh, not the tares. And um, you'll remember that this is based on the parable of Matthew 13, 24 through 30, about the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, Jesus is saying, a man sowed good seed in his field, but his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling, pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. In other words, don't mess with those weeds. You'll do too much damage if you try. Leave them alone and let God sort it out in the end. Now, this is not a message on the weed and tears of marriage, the weeds and tears of marriage. Apparently, one of our young people, I assume it was one of our young people, uh, entered last time's sermon not as the King James wheat and tears of marriage, but as the weed and tears of marriage. I think they were not up on their King James lingo. The question I raised that Sunday was, Uh, If we are married or intend to marry, what kind of marriage will we have? Will it be a marriage of wheat or tares? Will it be of grace or scars? Will it be a marriage that is a demonstration of the kingdom of God or something far short of that? After I gave that first part of the message, uh, Brian and Esther, precocious Uh, young students that they are, they leapt ahead and uh, began to identify what they might bundle together as wheat for a lasting marriage. Now, I I made them not tell me what uh, their their wheat is, and so after I've shared mine, you can flood them and see what what their wheat uh, is. Before I continue, I just want to say... A word to those who have had a marriage that has failed. This is not about condemnation. I pray that uh, God will bless you. And um, those of you who are looking ahead to marriage, that this would be blessing as well. And even our singles, that these, some of these principles would apply to you as well. I know they will. Uh, because God is faithful and his word is true. We might ask, uh, why did you get married if you ever did? Um, Perhaps you had a sense that this was God's calling and will for you to the specific person. I remember Gordon hearing that uh, within hours of meeting Susie, he knew uh, this was God's will for him. Uh, Many people marry. If you ask a hundred random people why they marry or want to get married, most of them will say, I want to have a best friend or I want to have a very good friend at least. Um, In Ecclesiastes 4, 8 through 12, we read about when two lie down together, they can keep warm. Many of us marry uh, for many kinds of relational comfort. We want someone to walk through life with and comfort us. Some people marry for sexual satisfaction. Proverbs 5 uh, is very effusive in uh, loving the wife of your youth and so on. Um, some Mary might say, we got married to produce godly offspring. That's out of Malachi. 
Um, I like to tell the story that long before Laura and I were engaged, uh, we were driving uh, through upstate New York, and I turned to her in a moment of uh, bliss and said, we are going to have beautiful kids. And that totally freaked her out because <laughs> she was scared. We hadn't talked about that, anything like that. Um, some people get married for companionship. Genesis 2.18, I will make a helpmate suitable for him. Others might actually enter into marriage with an idea that, that uh, this will help me die to myself. This will help me crucify my selfish desires. I know, Dave, you entered into marriage with that idea, didn't you? <laughs> Others for sexual containment. In other words, uh, I'm thinking of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, where Paul said, because of immoralities, let each of you uh, have a wife or a husband. Um, this one seems like a funny one in our Western culture for greater productivity. Any of you get married with that motive in mind? Um, but if you think about uh, agrarian cultures or third world cu cultures or even uh, our culture a hundred years ago in mail order brides, it wasn't just about uh, relational comfort, it was also about working the farm and producing lots of little ones to work the farm as well. And then uh, what we talked about last time was how marriage is an opportunity to display the kingdom of God and the possibility there of, of being a couple who loves each other in such a way that, that the world marvels and gives glory to God. The world marvels and is drawn toward Christ. So how you prioritize your answer to this question will define and color much about your marriage and ministry. Last time we talked about the tears of marriage and how the tears produce scars. You may not have caught it, but I was trying to have an acronym there based on the word scars. The S equals uh, secret sin. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The C is for control battles. Uh, that's pretty self-explanatory, but Galatians 5.15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. We talked about how easy it is for our flesh to want to avoid the divine order for marriage. Um, but we also talked about how there is real beauty in godly submission and real beauty in godly headship. And then the R is becoming, um, uh, excuse me, rejecting the image of God in our spouse and trying to create our own image. We become image makers and want our, Im want our spouse to be uh, recreated in our own image rather than allowing God to create his image in our spouse. And then finally, the S is for strongholds of the heart, how often uh, some contempt toward our spouse will enter our heart associated with a thought and how we need to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen.
Okay, but a marriage of wheat produces grace. And here's the acronym for grace. Graciousness of spirit, resisting rust in the relationship, appreciating each other often, celebrating who your spouse is, and expanding the kingdom of God. These are the five bundles of wheat that I've chosen to emphasize this morning. Let's take a look at graciousness of spirit. Um, Imagine a marriage filled with grace, a spouse who extends joy, pleasure, sweetness, kind speech, unmerited favor. Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) Maybe some of you can say, I have that actually. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe some of you would like to say that just, you know, to uh, schmooze your spouse. But Dr. Gary Rosberg says this, true service or servanthood means persistently watching for ways we can protect, love, assist, support, praise, appreciate, protect, and please our spouses, then taking action without expecting something in return. When I think of servanthood, I think of Dave, actually. Um, I don't know how many of you flash to Dave, but I think of his, his servant's heart and how that expresses itself. In most of us have had Dave help us move from one residence to another. Uh, I think of his service at the med van along with uh, Spencer and Carl and and um, Steve, but uh, more, most recently, I think of Beth on the worship team bragging about her morning cup of coffee that her wonderful husband made for her. I'll come in and I'll say, would you like some coffee? No, I've got mine. Uh, and she waxes eloquent about Dave's great coffee, a servant's heart. So why do we extend grace, especially over and over to our spouse. Uh, If you think about it, God is a God of grace. Amen? He freely extends it to us. It's by grace we have been saved. And because grace is a healing and a restorative force. uh, This is a quote. This whole uh, screen here is a quote by Michael Seitzma. He says, as God extends his grace to us and as we in turn extend grace to our spouses, we become better friends and lovers and can even experience deep and renewed levels of trust. We extend grace because it's the only way to have a great marriage that lasts. Our spouses aren't perfect, and neither are we. Grace allows us to have a great marriage anyway, and learning to extend that grace will make you a better, more Christ-like person. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and it came quite easily, actually. Uh, Laura and I were up in Minneapolis this last week uh, getting some furniture from my parents to bring back to Tulsa. We, had a, we borrowed Esther's and Brian's Forester, and we dragged a U-Haul, and uh, that thing was filled almost every square inch. And then we had a sleeper sofa on top of their car. And so we looked a little bit like the Beverly Hillbillies coming down the road. Um, But um, being with my dad, what what they're doing is they live on an assisted living compound. 
and they ha they've had sort of a condominium type arrangement. Now they're downsizing to the actual nursing home. The reason they're doing that is my mom is becoming quite frail and has a little bit of dementia, but my dad is, he's 86 and he's, he's just, I think he could beat me in a foot race, which really wouldn't be that hard, but, but he's, he's very athletic, uh, very alert, and yet I see him extending grace uh, by, by graciously moving to this new apartment that's much, much smaller. Um, for example, they have to park very far away from their new apartment, whereas before they've had a garage. And the way he frames that is it'll be a good chance to walk. And they, the fastest way for them to get from their car to their apartment is through sort of a, um, a garbage area, a garbage collection room that has recycling and trash. And my dad says, oh, this, this will be so convenient. We'll just be able to, to drop off our, our trash and our cans so easily. And then um, in the apartment, he, his biggest concern was, I don't know if Marjorie will be able to get far enough away from me when she's mad at me. Uh, and so, Here's an example of grace that can last, uh, has lasted a lifetime. Um, we need that in our marriages, don't we? Just how important is graciousness of spirit? Grace was Paul's salutation, his desired impartation, as he began each one of his letters in the New Testament. He would say what? Grace to you. Grace to you. And peace. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious. What a challenge, especially in a marriage relationship. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it, many become defiled. The second bundle of wheat that I'd like to highlight is resisting rust in the relationship. This is, I think, particularly of older couples who've been together a lot of years, and uh, the relationship has become like a comfortable old shoe. And there's nothing wrong with a comfortable old shoe, but sometimes you need uh, to shake that up. Or a young couple who has uh, young children and uh, they can't, they're just so overwhelmed with the needs of the children that it's difficult to get away and focus on each other. There's one very strong marriage resource that has listed uh, what it calls the blessings of marriage. You see them there. Friendship, fun, sensuality, and sexuality. And uh, I see this many times in counseling that even many, many Christian couples in their 40s, 50s, and 60s come and um, they're looking for a renewed life, renewed life in their relationship. And they've experienced what I call the domino syndrome, where they started out as friends, but the busyness of life and the demands of life caused that first domino of friendship to fall down. And when that fell down, they stopped attempting to go on dates or have fun, 
And so that fun domino falls down. And then the sensuality leaves their relationship, the romance, the affection, the hugging, the kissing, the touching, uh, non-sexual touching. And uh, they, try to, they tried to meet all their connection needs uh, through sex. But after a time, uh, even that becomes empty. And so what this uh, uh, marriage resource says is that the way to start over is to begin to build those first three again, the fun, the fun and the friendship and the sensuality. They, they especially highlight the power of sensuality, affection, hugging, cuddling, kissing, holding hands, vacations, and I'll even say surprises. Uh, one of the best things I ever did in our marriage uh, was I planned a day of surprises for my wife. And Jody, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you and Laura got a massage together, and, and uh, we went riding down Riverside on a bike, bicycle built for two, and uh, just did a lot of, we had a murder mystery at our house. Joel and Ruth, you came to that. Um, everybody had a character. I remember Jim Barger, his name was Cal Q Later, Calculator, and he had, he had uh, a calculator and a, what is it, a pocket pen thing, protector, pocket protector, and gazillion pens, and he had his hair slicked back, um, and he was calculator. The only trouble is that that wonderful thing I did was 20 years ago, and so it could be time for another one. Laura and had a, she actually kidnapped me here. Uh, I was at church, and she and the kids showed up. This was also about 20 years ago. And, uh, and, and she had arranged, she had talked to everyone that I needed, had appointments with and stuff to sweep me off to um, San Antonio. And we went to SeaWorld, which I love fish and, you know, seeing all that, uh, the whales and the dolphins and everything. So that was, that was a wonderful, wonderful time. Surprises. How many of you like surprises? Would like something like that? Yeah. John Gottman says, there must be at least, uh, excuse me, is this a new one? Yeah, it is. Appreciating each other often is the third uh, bit of wheat. There's a uh, Jewish marriage researcher up in Seattle called John Gottman. He says there must be at least five positives for every one negative or the marriage will not survive. That's a pretty strong statement. Now, a positive is something as, as small as good eye contact when, you, when you're listening to your spouse. It could be a walk together. It could be a shared laugh. It could be, um, I don't know, just a million things. So. Um, the Rosberg study says affirmation was the top emotional need for women and the fifth top emotional need for men. And it seems like when you run into these lists that, that psychologists or clinicians compile, that they're full of A words. For example, admiration, affection, affirmation, and appreciation are all in those lists. Um, and I see them as, as related uh, stalks of wheat that can be bundled together. 
And then more recently, a friend loaned me a, a DVD by a guy named Pastor Andy Stanley. And he said that when um, desires, the desires we have as we go into marriage become expectations, the marriage relationship devolves into a contract uh, rather than a covenant. It's, it's a debt-debtor relationship that squeezes out gratitude and appreciation. After all, my spouse is only doing what's expected of them. You understand what I'm saying? Um, and there's, you know, appreciation is, is, is squeezed out. There's, he, he has on the stage a giant uh, letter I. And he goes up to that letter and he caresses it. And he hugs it. This is I, I want, I expect. Um, and he says, how do, we, how do we break out of that? How do we break out of sort of demanding what we expect, putting those expectations back into our desires instead, which they were before marriage. Um, and he says the way to do that is to thank our spouse for the mundane things they faithfully do and to do works of service that are usually in their domain. Um, about, I think about five years back, Laura and I had, had words. Um, we had quite a fight. And um, I was very disappointed in her. I don't remember what for, but, but I remember where we were, and I remember her. Uh, by the way, we've talked about this, so don't, <laughs> don't worry about her. But we, um, I remember her saying, but Jim, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I, I remember... Uh, yelling at her, I don't care if you love me. I want you to respect me. And so she went to the Lord about that. And over time, she, um, the Lord spoke to her about how she, in her family, there was an ethic. And the ethic was, you don't get praise for things that are expected of you. Um, you, don't, you don't get words of appreciation for, to do what you're supposed to do. But the Lord started telling her, you know, give Jim appreciation for those things that even that he's expected to do. And so she has begun a process or began a process back then of, of thanking me for working hard, thanking me for... Um, what I don't know, just just stuff like like uh, moving the furniture that we brought home from Minneapolis into the house. She said, "Thank you for moving that furniture." I said, "Well, that's my job. Of course, I move the furniture." She said, "Thank you anyway, you know." And um, I have to admit, it feels really good. <laughs> I like it. So, um, you know, the next time I'm passing the sink. And the dishes need to be put into the dishwasher. It's very much easier for me to want to lighten her load. And, you know, she would say it's our load, but <laughs> we <laughs> you see, we haven't worked everything out yet, but <laughs> anyway, you, you get the idea. Here's some, here's some 
great scriptures on appreciating each other often. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That says to me that if you appreciate your spouse, you're going to, you're going to get some good fruit out of that. Proverbs 31, 28, and 29 is an example of a spouse praising their spouse, just in case you think that that's secular or humanistic. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her, saying, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to give you a challenge that you might consider as a couple or even as part of a couple, and that is, or even as a single, and that is enter a season of appreciation. Enter, enter a season with no particular ending point uh, where you begin to share uh, your appreciation for the things your spouse does, just every everyday things. Um, in, in going over some of these illustrations with Laura, she, she reminded me that um, we went through a real rough patch back in the 80s, and um, her list of, she, you know, the Lord told her to, to appreciate, try to appreciate me, and, uh, but, but her list was, was, was very short, believe it or not. But what she, started, what she started with was, Jim really knows how to back up a trailer. <laughs> and she, she w- went from there. So some, sometimes you may feel like you don't have a whole lot to work with, but if you do, if you keep after it, you will. Number four, bundle of weed, is celebrate who your spouse is. You might remember that I read this story of Bill and Annie um, where Bill was rejecting the image of God in his spouse. I just want to read that again. Bill and, Ann, Bill and his wife Annie came to see a counselor. When Annie looked at Bill, she clearly adored him. She was an attractive woman in a plain kind of way. Bill told the counselor, I was the captain of the football team. That was very important to him. The counselor heard it several times. I could date anybody in school I wanted, and I always dated the glamorous girls. The person I'm married to is not that. I know she loves me. She's a great mom and partner, but I'm having a hard time loving her. I've gotten her makeovers, and she looks stunning, but she hates it. I've gotten her beautiful outfits, and she doesn't like them. I'm learning that I need a princess, and my wife is not that. I was so sad, the counselor writes, because his wife had a lot of beauty. It wasn't about her not taking care of herself. It was the style and the way she did it. In his book, The Heart of Commitment, Scott Stanley writes that there comes a point where we have to grieve the loss of who our spouse is not. That part of celebrating them, uh, them being them, is grieving who they are not. I spent time with Bill, helping him to grieve the loss of the princess in his life. He would never be married to somebody who loved being gussied up. That part of his life had to die for him to move into celebrating who Annie really was, to appreciate the beauty he couldn't even see. 
This makes me think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. I was uh, thinking about what an inspiration Jim Garrett and his wife, Barb, have been to us over the years. I remember Jim talking about how he saw that girl in the pink sweater, and he had to have her, and how they got married, and, uh, but over the years, medical conditions uh, made life hard for them, um, more than one medical condition. And yet I want to say I never heard an unkind word from Jim about his wife. Um, in fact, what he, what he would talk about is how he loved to watch her in the flower garden, uh, planting her flowers, and how he loved to watch her watch the birds, and how he loved to watch the squirrels watch her watch the birds. and how he used to rejoice over her at her wonder at the beauty of the fall colors as they drove through New England and so on and so on. I just want to say to all the older couples in our body, we thank you for showing us how it's done. We thank you for your example. By the way, Mike and Marin Bros, I understand, have been married 29 years today. Is that right? Mike, well done. Marin, well done. Today? Oh! All right. Anybody else? I want to just mention uh, recent, uh, I've done some reading about brain, the brain, and uh, in the old days, the view was that the brain is very um, uh, static, very, not much changes. This works with this, eyesight works with this part of the brain, this works with this part of the brain, and so on. But they've done... Uh, several studies. One was a Harvard study where they asked students to come in and play five notes on the piano for two hours a day for three weeks. And at the end of each week, or maybe each day, I can't remember, they hooked up their brains and, and saw what they saw. And what they saw was, was that the brain was devoting more and more of its real estate to that activity. So it, they, they said it was like group of students, and they had them just think about those five notes for two hours a day for three weeks. And guess what? The same thing happened. The, the brain devoted more and more of itself to that, to that task and that focus. So what that says to me is that you've got to be able to 
become more of who we are. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, actually creating new pathways in your brain um, that replace the old ones. So what will you rehearse is a good question. The last uh, bundle of wheat is expanding the kingdom of God. If you have a marriage of grace, what is that going to produce? A lot of possibilities. One is a reflection of the character of God. As people look at you and your spouse, wouldn't it be wonderful if they begin to see the character of God flowing between you? Paul says it's a picture of of the love between Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. It's a witness that we are Christians. You know, when we read that verse, they will know you are Christians by your love. We don't usually think of marriage, do we? We think of within the body or something like that, but surely that would apply to marriage. When you have a, um, a, a truly godly couple, they become often a refuge and a resting place for wounded people. I bet we can all think of couples in this body and in our, in our histories where that's, that's been the case. It's a place where that couple shows that they are healed people. It can be a demonstration of the kingdom of God. It can even be a vehicle for evangelism as people are drawn to what they see in your marriage. One writer has said it's an opportunity to be a holy couple even. Let me just share that idea with you. Marianne McPherson Oliver writes, marital saintliness is clearly an ideal from which most of us, uh, most of what we see and experience is far removed. If there are a couple saints around, we might not even recognize them. Saints are rare, and holy couples should be rarer still, for there are not only two human beings, but their relationship to perfect. Uh, The writer, Gary Thomas, adds, what if a few couples took this pioneering challenge seriously and made it their goal to become a couple saint? Working together to present themselves as a holy unit, a pair of cherubim in the middle of whom God's presence is radically enlivened, it is at the very least an interesting invitation. I was trying to think of a couple that would seem that way to me. And I thought of uh, Sabina and Richard Wormbrandt. For those of you who were here in those days when they would come, they both had a real power as individuals, but also as a couple. They just seemed to have that godliness, that holiness between them. I don't think people are looking for perfect couples. Do you? You know, they're going to be disappointed. People are watching not how perfect we are, but how we treat each other. People are watching how we handle brokenness in our, in our relationship. Um, how we handle differences, how we work as a team, how we seek to minister from the midst of our own adversity. And I, I'd like to just, I hope I don't embarrass him, but I'd like to just say, to Randy McCoy, Randy, we, we honor you for how you continue to love Susan and 
care for her in the midst of, of, of a great affliction. So please know we're shoulder to shoulder with you, and, and um, we pray for full healing for Susan. Uh, I think couples look at how, especially how older couples resist rust in their relationship. Do they still have the fire? Do they still have the joy and the sizzle in their relationship? They look at how we persevere with one another. They look at how we extend grace to one another. So my conclusion is this. You can craft your own bundle or sheaves of wheat. I just want this to be a thought-provoking message for you to dwell on. My suggestion is that, or suggestions if you don't have any of your own, is that you consider a season of appreciation. Um, Maybe you and your spouse would want to take on a ministry together. For example, Aaron and Alex are newly married and yet praying on Monday nights, and, uh, and that's wonderful. Also, I think it's public knowledge now that uh, Daniel and Lauren, who just got married, are going to be leading BASIC after Brian and Esther and uh, Tom and Nicole leave this summer. Jumping into ministry, we need to pray for them. Um, you can, you can uh, do some vacations, some surprises to shake the rust off in your marriage or strive to be a, become a couple saint. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would enliven this message for you. He'd shed his light on where you can make adjustments in your marriage. But let me just briefly pray. Father, thank you so much for um, this day. I just thank you for this loving body. And I thank you for how it's rare here to hear someone speak ill of their spouse. And Father, we just pray we would become more like you and that our marriages would reflect you, that the kingdom of God would be seen in our marriages. We just praise you and bless you and commit this word to you. We ask your Holy Spirit to put his divine finger on where we might make adjustments to be more holy and more godly. We ask these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.